And now, reasons why white colonialism is awful, number 576. Okay, germ warfare, namely smallpox. I'm not sure if they invented germ warfare, but they sure as heck perfected it. I mean, the smallpox blankets that they sent over uh, to, you know, the new colonies and and wiping out Native Americans and then pretty much doing the same exact thing in Australia, except they can't exactly quite prove it, but it sure as heck wiped out a lot of people. And I just really want to know why. Why are they allowed to do this? I mean, just White colonialism, ladies and gentlemen, that's a little bit of history for you. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Sarah Ashley. Sarah, thank you for being a trooper, by the way, and being <laughs> pulling through. Um, Eric, strangely enough, it's one of these things where, like, now... <laughs> We're like, we're in the same studio once, maybe every 10 episodes, maybe. I, yeah, that's the way it feels like, huh? Well, so, guys, last episode, I was feeling under the weather. I'll be perfectly honest, lady troubles. And um, then Eric, when we were set to record today, our kind of makeup recording when I'm feeling much better, um, Eric had texted us today saying that he was feeling under the weather with a cold. And now I have a cold as well, somehow. Um, so if you can't tell, I'm extremely stuffy. <laughs> and I am on all of the over-the-counter meds. Yeah, and I'm recording so. from a plastic bubble right now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. So we're doing our we're doing another remote episode for you guys tonight, which doesn't really make a difference to you guys. You sound It sounds the same way to you, but to us, we're not in the nerd cave. We are in our individual homes on our laptops, just kind of shooting the, shooting the you-know-what. The, the breeze? Shooting the breeze, yeah. Well, there was these and the other, you know, the other word that yeah. we can't say on this podcast because we'll get bleeped. So Right. Right. Although appar- apparently we got feedback that uh, there was an episode where a bunch of it slipped through. Um, but, oh, well, swear yeah. words happen, especially when I'm present. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to get on with this, because this is going to be a, a shorter episode for you guys tonight um, due to time constraints and due to, frankly, I just, I just want Sarah to kind of, you know, rest and get whatever's in her immune system out. Because, <laughs> whatever's clogging my sinuses. <laughs> yeah, because basically something is sucker punching her white blood cells, and that's not cool. So um, yeah. what we're going to do is we're going to refresh real quick. So last time, Eric did just a beautiful job going over uh, Ab- the Aboriginal background of their culture and you know, generally speaking of how uh, migrations go in general and how the aboriginals got to Australia. And we certainly don't want to, to skip over a lot of that because the culture has its own unique mythology and geography and does definitely have a history of, you know, tribal disputes and what have you. The untouched history of the aboriginal Australians is, like I just said, very untouched up until about the 18th century. So that's really where we're going to take it off because really Europeans didn't didn't set foot there until about that time period. Um, yeah, I mean and it's so it's a little bit varied. There's uh there are some ideas that the Portuguese um had d- kind of discovered Australia, quote unquote discovered Australia, discovered as far as uh Europeans are concerned. Um 
uh, sometime around the 1520s. Right. Uh, they, did, but, they did a sail by and you're like, oh, huh, there's land there. Cool. Basically. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and some people say they touched down, but there's not really any substantial evidence to really support that. Right. Um, the Dutch definitely went by um, in 1606 um, and made the first documented landing. Um, although probably didn't hang around for too much, but enough to say, hey, let's call this New Holland. Um, that was Australia's name for a very long time. Um, and then um, we also had uh, the Spanish landed in 1606 at one point. Um, just kind of a few people along the way, uh, namely uh, 1644, Abel Tasman, who was um, another uh, another Dutchman. Um, he was the first known European um, expedition to reach actually Tasmania. Um, hence why it has the name Tasmania, named after him, Abel Tasman. Um, and then a few other um, explorations, but we really get to a, a key point when we get to 1770, and that's when James Cook of the Brits landed. We talked um, about James it, Cook on our on our surfing episode where we talked about, you know, how he was essentially put to death by the, by the peoples of, of Hawaii, so... Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this sure is before did. that, obviously. <laughs> sure did. Um, and uh, and he basically went through and he surveyed the east coast of New Holland. Um, and it was basically at that point the only major part of the continent that hadn't already been charted out by the Dutch. Um, and they landed uh, also in Botany Bay, which later became the first colony right. of and the he, British. right. And so he claimed it for the British crown, but it wasn't yeah. actually determined that it was. And, they, and they, I think they unofficially it became what was eventually be called New South Wales. It Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and he kind of went there and basically said, hey, you know what? This place isn't really, um, you know, this place isn't really uh, inhabited. I can't really take the West because it belongs to the Dutch, but um, they really haven't laid claim to the East. So we're going to go ahead and laid claim to it. Um and that kind of nailed it down for the Brits. Um, and then it was 17 years later was when the first fleet came in. Right. Um, and they landed on January 26th, which is a very important day. It's uh, Australia Day, uh, national holiday for them. Um, and they basically went on James Cook's recommendation to land in Botany Bay. And right. this this is just the beginning of what will be a very turbulent settlement and, and one that I know Eric had called out on the last episode, one that kind of um, parallels a lot to the British landing in, uh, in America. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's very interesting because there are so many parallels of the European colonization of America and... <laughs> of Australia. Um, but the one thing I think is very different that we do have to talk about is really is the fact that, well, America was essentially it, the American colonies. Yes, there were penal colonies, but the majority of them were people who were just coming to the United States to, or, or coming to the new world, I should say, to, um, to live and to, to live, to practice religion freely. Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, yeah. the call of adventure. And you also got to figure, um, at the timing of this, this is, um, 1788 when this new, when the first fleet landed, 
when this new colony was established. So this is also the British kind of trying to recoup some of their losses that they just experienced with the American Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was that, and it was also that, you know, Britain was in the middle of an industrial revolution. And, you know, because of that, they had already started to see the population explode in major cities. Um, And also because of that, poverty started to get extremely abject. So you have people... And generally, you know, when you look at those graphs, when you see a rise in poverty, you also see a rise in crime. That's really not much of a surprise because people are struggling for survival. Um, Yes. And so basically, because prisons were now becoming overrun and overpopulated, the British government decided, well, we will use Australia as a penal colony to basically just get these people out of there. And yeah, and it, and also there were a lot of um, movements happening in England at the time, uh, calling for prison reform because of the absolutely terrible way um, a lot of these prisoners were being treated, and it was almost seen as for some people, um, even though they were kind of essentially being banished to the wild, <laughs> um, it was partly a deterrent, um, but at the same time also partly appeased some of the prison reformers because a lot of these prisoners who were skilled in certain areas uh, were being sent and put to work and putting their skills to good use to help build up this colony. So it's kind of almost like a, a prison labor camp <laughs> of sorts. Yeah. But, but, but here's the thing, though, because you, you hear prison labor camp and you get these flashes of you know, the horrors of the 20th century, like gulags yeah. or even worse. Yeah. Um, but this was a little bit different. I mean, yes, they were treated horribly, but these were people who were working to pay their debts back so that they could earn their freedom and earn yes. and reclaim their status in society. Yeah. So, and and yeah. also after 1801, they were able to basically earn their freedom to the point where they could stay and work as freemen um, and get paid. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah. so it was a, a pretty a pretty decent opportunity considering um i'm not really sure which which you would prefer um but the interesting part of course um being when they landed that you know this whole area is still populated with the aboriginal people and so yeah about half a million or actually three quarters of a million aboriginal peoples to be exact yeah and um the first governor who uh was governor philip he was given strict orders to land and to try and create a peaceful colony, um, at, basically in peace, and working together with the aboriginals. And what was interesting about that is that uh, not everybody else was quite on board um, with that concept, um, especially a lot of the settlers who were um, having a hard time surviving. Those first three years of that first colony were really, really tough, and a lot of people were on the brink of starvation. Um, and while the a lot of the Aboriginals just kind of wanted to be separate from these people, they just kind of stayed on the fringes. Um, there were a lot of conflicts that were happening, uh, little mishaps here and there, and based on Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal society they have a system of, of payback um, to whereas if you inflict harm on them, they're allowed to inflict, inflict harm back on you, kind of tit for tat. And basically what ended up happening is that would kind of escalate to a level where British soldiers wouldn't accept that it was payback. They saw it as another affront upon them. And so they would just kind of build up on each other. Yeah, and and at of the course, scene, they're going to use the most powerful military in the world at that point to, to try to suppress yeah. them, unfortunately. 
But you'd be really surprised because there were um, there were certain tribes who were able to um, outsmart and kind of terrorize British soldiers uh, for quite some time. Um, what's really interesting is um, while these kind of side conflicts are happening um, and rampant, rampant smallpox going through with, with the coming of the new settlers. And what's interesting about that is that nobody's really for sure on how smallpox came to the continent. Some people say it came from the north and just kind of happened to have a really bad timing uh, with the Brits arriving. Um, yeah. Some people say that the British uh, brought it on purpose. Um, however, if you look at a lot of the writings, um, the British, you know, or like the ones that they still have, a lot of letters um, and recordings have the British acting very shocked at how smallpox was terrorizing them. Right. And Um, I think what it comes down to is that, you know, America had seen a smallpox outbreak as well um, from this, from the same channels. And it more has to do, I think with the fact that I'm not saying that usually reality is somewhere in between. Right. But I, I think it's probably more to do with the fact that nothing even remote to that had been introduced into the immune systems of the Aboriginal well, and, peoples, and that's why it was so potent. Well, that's obviously why it was so potent and why it took out a huge number of their population, a startling amount. Like 90%. Um, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you know, you do still have to wonder how it got there. And the fact that the British had purposely used used smallpox as germ warfare um, by putting it in blankets and giving it to Native Americans and had used it in India as well, um, there's... You know, a lot of people are very suspect of the British and saying that they actually brought smallpox on purpose. But there's no um, conclusive evidence of it yet, is what you're saying. No conclusive as evidence, right. Um, and what's really interesting also is, you know, having the aboriginal social structure kind of falling apart because of disease um, and people trying to properly honor their dead and give the, the right kind of ceremonies— and then they themselves contracting it and it going through just a terrible cycle. Um, you see, there are some Aboriginals who are trying to um, also be in peace with the white folk, the white fellas, as they call them. Um, you know, trying to trying to somehow understand why they weren't susceptible to it and and get a better understanding of what was going on with the ones who were more peaceful. And uh, the governor actually wanted to try and he, – he really was trying to set uh, forth a good example on how to create peace. And he did this by uh, capturing and enslaving <laughs> a, uh, an Aboriginal man named Benelong um, and kept him in a chain, actually, in his house for, some, for quite some time and slowly oh, taught – I know. Isn't this terrible? Slowly taught Benelong – um, all about British culture and European culture. And Benelong at the same time started to teach uh, Governor Philip about the Aboriginal culture. And then they start to slowly develop an understanding. And, um, and at, at some point, Benelong actually starts calling uh, Governor Philip his, starts calling him father, the Aboriginal name for father. And, and Philip starts calling Benelong son. And 
eventually, one day, they build enough trust that they finally take the chains off of, of Benelong. And at this point, he's already been in, like, British dress and all this other stuff. And the night that they take off the chains, Benelong strips all of his clothes and bounces. He is gone. <laughs> wow. And he, okay. Yeah, and he and he runs right back to his tribe. Um, Who, and now he knows everything about the British, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so, but at the same time, Benelong's a really charismatic dude. Um, he goes back to his tribe. They they reaccept him back. Obviously, he gets reunited with his wife. They go back, and then Philip basically kind of goes out on a hunt. He's like, "Oh man, I want to find Benelong." He was like basically my one mediator. He was like the one guy I could have. So he goes out. He finds him. Um, they they see him. Benelong's tribe sees him. They get payback, and they throw a spear. And it injures him. Now, mind you, the Aboriginals are very, very good at what they do with spears. So they purposely injured him. If they wanted to kill him, they would have. They basically injured him and say, you need to stay on your line and we'll come to you when we're ready. And um, eventually, uh, Benelong does uh, go back to Philip and eventually goes with Philip to England. He leaves behind his wife (laughs) And goes back to England and actually gets kind of absorbed into British culture. And, of course, the, the British over there are so fascinated by this by this Aboriginal man. They want to touch him. They, they are, you know, want to feel his skin. Um, kind of very, very much exploiting him. <laughs> but yeah. um, And treating him kind of like a museum object, you know. But at the same time, he's kind of playing with them, too. Eventually, um, the companion that he brought with him gets sick, uh, gets sick and dies, and Benelong gets kind of ill and um, just isn't really feeling England anymore. Eventually, makes it back home, but he's basically kind of the shadow of the man that he once was, hmm. and um, gets reintegrated back into a tribe, but isn't quite the same. And he's still kind of dancing around on on British culture because at this point in the settlements, there's a lot of Aborigines who. Um, were allowed to live in the settlements, but then all of a sudden were pushed out to the fringes and were kind of living in in squalor and poverty. Um, and then Benelong basically just falls and falls to to drink and alcoholism because rum was uh, plenty. And um, eventually, he just kind of lost everything. He went from being super famous uh, to to being nothing. And it was just kind of devastating to, to see that, that trajectory for him. Um, and that was, you know, fairly similar for a lot of the people who, um, who got incorporated into, the, into white society then was rejected by white society and kind of vice versa. Um, and then you had other aboriginals who had a huge impact and kind of an interesting turning point. Um, one of them was uh, Pemue, and he was a warrior. A complete and utter warrior. That guy had seen violence between inter-Aboriginal tribes. Um, he was seeing the treatment of Aboriginals by the white folk, and he was he was on a mission. So um, he would kind of terrorize the the British soldiers and then run away and like kind of dart off into the night. Um, he and his groups would, um, you know, light very uh, smart. Um, purposeful burns of the of the bush and drive um, British soldiers away from them off the trail hmm. um, and all this other stuff. And he became kind of public enemy number one 
for the British soldiers to the point that once they finally got him after many years of trying, once they finally got him, they cut off his head and put it in a jar with like, you know, preservatives and shipped it to England. Wow. And they, yeah, which is a huge affront in the Aboriginal culture because then they can't follow their, their rites and their ceremonies to lay the dead to rest. And therefore his spirit doesn't go to its proper place basically. Right. And they're parading his head through the streets. They take his head to England, parade it in England, put it in a museum where it gets lost with a bunch of other artifacts. And it's just horrendous. And at, at that point it was another turning point where things just got super violent between the aboriginals and the white people. Yeah, and and just the list of, or sorry, there's there's a litany of of injustices that had happened, and sure they may say it's justified because of conflicts, but you know, we're talking like cartoonish villain behavior, but it's actually true, like mass shootings, um, yep. r- literally being run off the edge of cliffs with uh, horses, um, as in the horses of of. Yeah. The British Army running Aborigines off the edges of cliffs uh, in massive groups, and it's when you hear that, it's just that that makes your skin crawl. Like it really does. That like people treat them that awfully. Yeah. Um, but you know, kind of diverting away from what's happened with the Aboriginals, which is absolutely terrible. Um, you also have to, you know, let's look at what's happening with these these settlers and these convicts. Um, you know, eventually, the, those first three, three, three years, like I said, were really, really rough. And actually, Gover- uh, Governor Philip retired after the first three years and was like, I am done. <laughs> um, and couldn't quite um, handle it anymore because survival was just really, really tough. Um, and not to mention that they had a huge issue with uh, disproportionate amounts of males versus females. Um, and the amount of people that were coming to the colonies. A lot of that had to do with the fact that there were um, convicts. Um, And if you look between um, 1788 and 1868, um, it was about 160,000 convicts that came to um, New South Wales, and only about 25,000 of those were women. Yeah. Most of, yeah, most of them were guys. <laughs> well, even in the first ship, you know, there was a three-quarters men and because and, uh, the ship had like 500 crewmen and about 1,000 convicts and of that 727 of them were men. So, yeah. it yeah, it's very very disproportionate. Yeah, absolutely. And so they were, you know, having a, a hard time sustaining the population for one. But at the same time, you know, it was a matter of building up this colony and and there were, you know, just a disproportionate amount of male convicts and male thieves that were getting shipped over. Um, but the women took a really vital role as to what was going on in the colony, um, having to work um, as medics, um, you know, cooks, etc. while this place was being built up, um, you know, helping with uh, tending, uh, tending to the land, etc. Um, eventually, as things started to get more stable in the colonies, they were able to push out over the um, over the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, using an Aboriginal trail, and that's where all the major land grabbing started happening. People were basically going out trying to make name for the make a name for themselves and establish their own um, 
property out there. You had a lot of squatters also going through um, and not taking, you know, <laughs> taking advantage of uh, the loosely drawn uh, wilderness lines, basically on property. Sure. And uh, and making a pretty decent profit off of uh, you know stealing sheep and and you know squatting on land that wasn't really theirs. Um, and of course, incre- increased conflicts with the Aboriginals happened as soon as they were pushing out more. Um, which is you know I'm totally doing a very cursory overview of this whole you know part of Australian history, and I wish I could do a more deep dive. But again, we're kind of you know on time. <laughs> yeah, we do have to deal with time constraints, but you know what? What we'll do instead, I think, is we'll keep going. But I would love to give our listeners some of the resources that we used and oh, definitely. learn for themselves. And I think that'll be a nice way of saying to our listeners that hey, yeah, you guys got a little taste of it, but here's the, what you can go out and do your for your own research Absolutely. and discover. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, And what's really interesting also, too, about this, um, you know, I forgot to mention, I know this is a, of interest a lot to you, Brian, um, but that uh, actually a lot, of, um, a lot of the convicts that came over, you know, you had a lot of the petty British thieves and repeat offenders and da-da-da. We also had a lot of um, Irish rebels who mm-hmm. were sent to um, to Australia, and um, subsequently, uh, Catholicism was really um, regulated in Australia, and um, and they had you know kind of a lockdown in, on with the Church of England. They were very strict about um, keeping the spread of Catholicism very very small. Like they didn't want it to get too out of hand because it was still a British colony after all. Right, so. of course, and, they want, and that just goes back to the same gripes that the crown had with with the papacy. Um, yeah. However, this is fast forwarding more to later on, but Catholicism did have its day, and it is actually the most next to the Church of England. It's the actually I think it is there are more Catholics than Anglicans in Australia now. So. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I am sure someone is going to write in with feedback saying, uh, no, 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 it's not true. I, and you know what, whatever, welcome it. I'm, I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the, the purveyor of misinformation at this point on the show. That's so. true. Well, actually I have a correction for myself. I think I said Blue Ridge Mountains. It's just the Blue Mountains. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I need to clarify that. I think the Blue Ridge Mountains are something else, but the Blue Mountains in Australia, my bad. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, so you know, where where do we want to take this from here? Um, so there were a lot of interesting uh, sources of conflict within uh, the the New South Wales colony. Um, there was an actual um, full on uprising and takeover um, of a government um, during the uh, the Rum Rebellion, um, which I think it's the only the only uprising and overthrowing of a government in Australian history. And that one, you know, kind of, it was a, an uprising by the Army Corps, and it overthrew um, the governor at the time who, um, you know, was, was annoying people for several different reasons. Um, part of it, he was, you know, trying to be rather egalitarian on how um, resources and supplies were split up um, when the Army Corps was trying to take advantage of supplies for them, and they were um, right. a little corrupt and had a pretty lucrative rum trade um, in the area. Yeah, well, it's really important to remember that the colonies, the overall six colonies that would eventually become the Australian states, 
um, were very much like the 13 colonies that we had in the United States and that they each had a governor who was essentially a vice royal figure, you know, and they wielded a lot more power than they would have let the governors do today. And we would let our governors do today for that matter. So, you know, when you have that much power over a patch of land, it does tend to make you sometimes power drunk and then you act more tyrannically than you might do if you were living somewhere else, you know? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, not to say that that justifies any of the behavior, but at least gives some insight into why these things happen, you know? Right, right. Um, and, you know, and I, being the fact that they were so far away and a lot of people, um, especially when you start getting more into... Um, you know the the sort of nationalism of of Australia um, after you know establishing a democracy and um, in the late 1880s, you know, so many people at that point, 90 percent of the the people living in Australia were native, in the sense that they were born on the continent, right? Um, even though most of them were, you know, super white. <laughs> so most of them were uh, European descent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. But you you have to kind of admire the fact that aside from that one skirmish, the the revolution to slowly give Australia its independence yeah. um, was mo- largely nonviolent, which is really actually impressive. It is. It is, and, and it was. Uh, it was basically at at the request they they made an act of parliament um, to to establish the Commonwealth. Um, but before they did that, I do want to mention this: that another kind of interesting parallel that they have with uh, with the United States um, is that uh, they also had a gold rush around um, eighteen fifty one. Yes, they did. It's so odd that it was like only two years apart that that happened. Well, we had yeah. a series of gold rushes though, but the California gold rush, of course, was eighteen forty nine. But right, there exactly. Was an, there was an Alaskan gold rush in the late eighteen hundreds, of course, and there was a. Wasn't there a Washingtonian gold rush, too? Or am I thinking silver? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting because actually gold had been found as early as 1823. Uh, but the amount that they found in 1851 was just complete. Like, it was kind of like at that point, for some of them, they're like, California, whatever. Let's go to Australia. It seems to be a lot closer. And um, they got a huge wave of immigrants um, coming from... Uh, the British Isles, from Europe, from even from North America, and of course from China. Um, lots of people coming and kind of saw a nice little population bl- uh, boom in a very short amount of time, like within 10 years. Um, it went from 76,000 uh, people in the colony of Victoria to 530,000 yeah, within 10 years. That's astounding. <laughs> that's huge. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, um, there was a- an interesting shift in culture. Uh, you also had a lot of bushrangers that came out. <laughs> and I, this is just so cool because this is like the Australian version of outlaws, of like Old West outlaws. Um, and a lot of them are people like convicts that escaped the, the British colonies and had the skills to go survive out in the wild. Isn't that funny? Uh, it's almost like Australia is like bizarro America. And that, like, the chain of events are so similar. It just one happens to be in the South Hemisphere and one happens to be in the Northern Hemisphere. It's, a little bit. Yeah. It's it's really, and I don't mean that, that as disrespect. I say it as kind of a term of endearment. But it is really, really interesting hearing how just how many coincidental parallels happen between the two countries. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And so the, you kind of had um, in the 1800s, yeah, early 1800s, you had these bush rangers, these these escaped convicts. Then you have the gold rush, and it just it does basically give the same kind of romantic sense of the old west that we have in the United States, except there it's the Australian outback, you know? <laughs> so, right, right. Uh, and so what's really cool about that too is you know you kind of have this again the sense of adventure this uh, the sense of of establishing your your homestead and all of that it it ends up driving yeah a huge wave of immigrants which is what they've been wanting since they landed in 1788 they wanted a reason to drive more people there because they didn't want to just be a colony full of convicts um, and they were you know dying out because population issues because of you know not enough women to go around. Um, and so they end up getting kind of the, the support and the people that they need in order to, uh, better establish a, a, a long, a longer term situation, um, which it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and so, um, like I said, so there was a huge growth of nationalism, um, in the 1880s because you had, um, a lot of people who you know, really associated with living in Australia, being born in Australia. Um, and there was a huge influx of art and, and literature um, and kind of uh, this, this sort of folk movement that really established an Australian culture. Um, and that's what really pushed people to um, demand um, some independence effectively. Right. Um, now, what having, we say, yeah. And having basically a constitutional monarchy. Right, right. And which is, I mean, that's essentially what Britain had at this at this point. Um, but basically asking for the same things that the British citizens back home would have had. So or by, back home, back, by back home, I mean in Great Britain. So, yeah. And what is, what we mean by that independence is really self-rule, right? Having their own parliament, their own laws and constitutions that are not strictly subject to to British rule. And they maintain a, a, most of that uh, independence up until the 19, I think even 1960s, where they gained even more, uh, or they, they severed even more constitutional ties to the British government, um, but while still maintaining, of course, that the British monarch is also the, the head of state for Australia. And they considered the queen or king totally separate as then than the Queen of England, but yet it is the same person. So it's it is like the same person. Yeah, it, it is like Queen Elizabeth II is not the Queen of Great Britain uh, and North Ireland, you know. And but she is she is, and then the Queen of Australia. She is separate queens of all these different countries in the British yes. Commonwealth. Yes, um, she is quite separately also the Queen of Canada as well, which I just I find yeah. fascinating that there's this nomenclature that goes on with that, but yet it is essentially the same thing. Right, right. And and so 1901 is when they established the the Commonwealth of Australia um, and kind of uh, Australia as we know it today. Um, and what's really um, interesting about this too, and I kind of want to go back to the um, Aboriginal people for a little bit, um, is that also at this time, you know, so much of the Aboriginal people have, a lot of their culture has been touched, died out, kind of somewhat phased out. And so many of the languages, because there were many Aboriginal yeah, languages. We talked about it. There was, there was over yeah. 500 languages. Yeah. 
Yeah. So many of them were lost. I think they don't like, we've only, I think have 30 now. Um, if I remember correctly from the last time I did my research, (laughs) um, but and you had a lot of um, Abor- uh, Aboriginal people who had been pulled into uh, the white settlers' culture, put in white settlement dress, given uh, the education that white settlers basically a kind of intentional um, forced integration, uh, introducing Christianity. You know all all of that uh, that you see that's very common for for colonialism at this period. Sure, and. Um, eventually in the early 1900s, um, this sentiment that, you know, the, any aboriginals, native aboriginals that were left, um, were kind of seen as, you know, inferior, basically, there's no other way to bounce around it, basically seen as an inferior. And so you had all these white people go through and, take children away. And I, we talked about this in the, in the eugenics episode a few, you know, several months back. Was oh, that actually, last year? It was like over a year ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. A long time ago. Um, actually yeah, it might have been two the, years ago. That's cr- even crazier. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, you had, you had these, um, these white settlers go, th- not settlers at this point, but you had these white people come through and take, um, the aboriginals children away from their families and try to raise them as their own. Um, and there's a huge movement now, people who are looking for reparations for that people who, um, are still trying to be reunited or just cannot like have lost all trace of their family. Um, and are trying to heal from that whole, from being a missing child is what they call them. Um, and there's a, a big movement to try and regain, a lot of that culture because it's had such a long lasting effect. Um, yeah. On, on these people. I mean, I think they stopped the practice like sometime, like I want to say like the seventies or something. Wow. It, it just, it went on for way too long. Um, and it's just absolutely devastating to the culture. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's the sad part is that there's so much richness that we did talk about last time and so much beauty to that culture that, is at risk. And there's even a point where they, they, I, where I remember re- watching and reading uh, the research that Charles Darwin had visited in the 19th century. And he, this is of course, unfortunately when race science was becoming more of a, of a believed conception, which we now know is going to be completely and utterly uh, f- false. But BS. Ex- yeah, exactly. Um, and he used that for his, some of his observations in his books. And he, he actually was very shocked and saddened. He believed the Aboriginal race was going to go extinct because of what had happened. And he's not wrong in that they, they were, their populations were threatened, but the terming, no, using the terms extinction and race as if he was referring to an animal is what's yeah. kind of disheartening about that. And these are obviously sure. very culturally rich people, as you've, we've said from our last episode on talking about everything that we've talked about that we won't need to repeat again, but, right. um, you know, folks, I really do think, and I hope that I know this has been a lighter episode and more top level, but we do really hope that this has inspired you to want to learn more about our friends in Australia. And if you were one of our many Australian listeners, uh, first of all, sorry that we didn't give you 
give you as much of the time due that you des- absolutely deserve. But also, you know, we hope it inspires you a chance to go back and relearn maybe parts of the history that you don't know as well. You well, know? The, the really cool part is that there's so many interesting aspects to it that we could absolutely do deep dives on in the future. Um, there's there's too many good th- like I a deep dive on the rum rebellion would be really freaking cool to do. Um, uh, uh, I there's just so much there. It's and I I know you guys have talked about uh, like uh, Gallipoli and all those other things. Like there's so much really interesting stuff there that um, you know could could really serve to do a deep deep dive. But this is just a a nice general topic for a lot a lot of us who didn't didn't know much about Australian history before this. Totally, so. and, and I would love to do you know the Australian perspective of World War One and World War Two and uh, all that kind of stuff. That would be very fascinating. But here's what we're going to give you guys now. We would like to give you some of the resources that we said earlier that we used to help prepare for this episode because you deserve the right to one not take our word for it and two go out there and learn it for yourself and maybe share with, with us some things that we haven't been able to share yet. Uh, one is the documentary series called The First Australians. which So uh, good. So great. Uh, very high quality, but pretty much done by the Australian version of PBS and is available almost in its entirety on, on, uh, on YouTube. So you can definitely watch those there and learn a lot uh, about what's going on there. But also, oh, if you want a, a more succinct version of that, particularly about the struggle of the Aboriginal peoples with European colonization, um, australianstogether.org.au is a really tremendously uh, organized resource with great firsthand quotes. To so good. I loved people. that. I loved that, finding that resource. That was that was so inspiring and, and heartbreaking at the same time. It was really great. Yeah, and it, it is a secondary source, but it is a very well documented and very well referenced by the way uh, resource that you can go and you can go even further back to if you wanted to do further reading I just said further like five times but um, yeah. and so there you have it guys I think what we're going to do this episode is we're going to I know we said we would do feedback this episode but I think we're going to push feedback again just one more episode over so that you guys have a longer episode that we'll do uh, as we get to the holidays and then we will we will go back to our normal feedback schedule from there. Um, Sarah, do you have any final thoughts before we close it up? Uh, no. And I, uh, just, just want to say guys, I sincerely apologize for my snotty sound for being, sounding so congested. <laughs> yeah, and I apologize for the, the background noise you may hear, uh, <laughs> since I'm recording this from home. So, uh, it'll make it feel like you're, you're, you know, Getting, I guess, a, a 3D. I don't know. Is that even a thing for audio? It's, it's, it sounds like they're all chilling in our living room. Exactly. Literally. Yeah. So uh, there is that. But, you know, Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners how they can share feedback with us so that they can we can read it on another episode? Absolutely. So if you guys go to nerdonomy.com, nerdonomy.com, nerdonomy.com. Four years now, Sarah. You can, you can do this. <laughs> 
I know I can. It's just really hard when you're congested. If you go to nerdonomy.com and you click that talk to us button, um, it will shoot an email to all of our inboxes. Um, or you Shoot can an email, s- not the way it sounded like it. It will shoot an email. Shoot, shoot an email. Um, you can also uh, hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Nerdonomy. You will find us, I promise. Nerdonomy. <laughs> you will find us, I promise you that. Uh, but the most important thing that you could do is give us a review on iTunes. Just spread the word of nerd. Uh, we would really love to have a bunch of new listeners to help um, support what we are doing here and also to enjoy the sound of my sniffles. Yeah, right. Uh, indeed. And of course, the more reviews you give us, the higher we will show up in the search ratings for the iTunes store. So that does certainly help us out by doing that. Um, but of course, most importantly, right, She like she said, spread the word of nerd and uh we look forward to meeting with you again soon as we get into our holidays and we get to do our holiday-themed episodes. So that'll be very, very... Episode uh, singular. Assume, yeah, yeah, singular, because they won't let me do more than one themed episode a year now. Um, but, you know, it, it is that time, nerd. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting holiday-themed episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. Later. I think I'm going to blame white colonials colonials for my cold. It's more germ warfare. It may not sound like you were going to blame white cannolis for your cold for a moment. I could blame white cannolis too.